0: So, if you have a Bible with you this morning, thank you guys. You can open up to the book of Acts. We began a few weeks ago our study, verse by verse, through this incredible book, the book of Acts in the New Testament, right after the Gospels. And it's written by Luke, the author. And uh, we have an opportunity this morning to look at the next section here. We're going to cover verses 12 through 20. And I've titled uh, this morning's message as Waiting for the Spirit. Waiting for the Spirit, Acts chapter 1. Let's look at verses 12 through verses 20, and we'll dive into our time together. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to their upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, and with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, "'Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled.' which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one dwell in it and let another take his office. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning. We thank you for your kingdom that is here on earth. We thank you for our King, Jesus, who reigns in the heavens. And in our hearts, and we're grateful for your spirit that has filled every believer. And We're thankful that we can sing songs to you in worship and that we can read your word, and that we can gather together this morning. What a privilege it is for us to gather to sit under the teaching of the scripture. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning as we're waiting for the spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, are you waiting for something to happen in your life? Are you waiting for God to move in a special way or to respond to a certain prayer or to provide you with a certain direction? Are you in a place now or have you ever been in a place where you feel like you're pressed up against the unknown? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you have no idea what to do next, You may be at this very moment trying to make a really difficult decision that could determine the trajectory of your life. You should be deciding, you you could be deciding right now, should I marry this girl or not? You could be deciding, should I change my major? Should I keep my job? Should I move out of the state of California? And the answer to that last one is no. You stay right here with us. All right, we're doing this together. Don't you leave the state. All right. So you may be at this very moment, though, trying to make a decision and you're trying to figure out what is it that God would want you to do. And hopefully you're praying to God for wisdom. You're praying to him for knowledge and for the strength to trust him and to walk with him throughout your journey. Waiting is hard especially when you're not in control of the situations to be able to determine the outcome to your liking. One of the hardest things I ever had to wait on was when I was finishing college applying to physician's assistant school. After I had applied, been interviewed, they said, we'll send a letter in the mail to let you know whether you're in our program or not. And so for the next month, I'm like going to the mailbox every day at lunchtime, trying to figure out uh, whether or not I'd been accepted to go into this incredible program. And one day the letter came. It was in the mail. And I bring the letter back up to the kitchen table where I was having lunch with my mom. And I remember telling my mom, this letter's going to change my life. I'm either going to go to PA school and be a physician's assistant, or I'm going to go try to play for the Atlanta Braves baseball. So <laughs> So I opened the letter, congratulations, you've been accepted to the Medical University of Georgia. It was, it was a hard time to wait, but it's an exciting time to wait as well because you know somehow, some way, God's at work and he's behind the scenes doing exactly what he wants to do. And you know what? Waiting is worth it. Waiting on God is very important in our relationship with him. Waiting plays a key role in our spiritual development and maturity. Waiting does not have to create bitterness or anger or anxiety or loss of hope. Waiting can help you establish a deeper trust in and knowledge of God and to know how much he loves you. Let me just quickly share with you five things This isn't in your notes, but just quickly, five things that waiting on God has taught me over the years. Number one, I need to cling to the promises found in God's word. As you wait, make sure that you're waiting on the Lord and not waiting on people, not waiting on circumstances, not waiting on your feelings to change, wait on the Lord Don't live your life based on things outside of your control. We live our lives by trusting in the promises of God. Who or what are we waiting on? Hopefully, you were learning to wait on the Lord. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. So wait on the Lord, not on people. Wait on the Lord, not on circumstances. Wait on the Lord, not on your feelings, because God's word will never change or fade away. God's word is his character. In his word, you have real hope. A second thing I think about and I've learned over the years while I've been waiting is number two, God is right there with me in my waiting. Isn't it nice that you don't have to wait all alone? In Exodus chapter 33, Moses may have felt lonely. Things have been not going so well with the Israelites. And in the previous chapter, in fact, they had made and worshiped a golden calf. And now God is calling Moses back to the tent of meeting. And Moses needs to know what to do next. And while God didn't reveal everything to Moses, he did say in Exodus 33, 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. No matter what happens in your life, no matter who disappoints you, God will always be with you and his presence will always go before you and his presence will always be there with you and give you rest. And that makes waiting a sweet experience instead of a sour memory. Number three, I look more like Jesus after waiting. The moment God saved you through Christ, you entered into God's family where he has predestined you for development and growth. God begins working in our lives to mature us and to grow us and to make us look more like Jesus. And this development begins when we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion and Jesus promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. God is using your time of waiting to conform you more and more into the image of his son. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen to me this morning. Waiting is not a waste of time. It is a wonderful time when God is working on you and changing you to make you more like Christ. Number four, God's plans for my life are better than my own. You think you know what's best for you, but you don't, right? God in his infinite wisdom knows and he does what is best for you every moment of every day. And while you're waiting, he's working everything for your good. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In my waiting, God is working and crafting my life and my character in a way that would bring him the most glory. And when he is glorified, that's when I'm satisfied. And when he's glorified, I realize that I'm actually in good hands of a good, good father. Number five, the fifth thing waiting on God has taught me over the years is this. I can trust God to provide for me each and every day. God will never abandon me. He will never disown, disavow or discard me. God is sustaining me in my waiting and he is refining my faith and preparing me for some new opportunity. And in the meantime, I must seek him. Matthew 6:33. Jesus said in the sermon on the mount, "Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be Added to you. Waiting on the Lord can be hard, but when you do it in this way, it is a very, very, very good thing. And in our passage today, we are reminded that Jesus promised that when he went away, he would send another helper, but the disciples would first have to wait. God still sovereignly sends the mysterious winds of the Holy Spirit, his power, his comfort, and his presence to those who know and serve Jesus Christ. And we don't know exactly why or how the Spirit works, but we have been told what we must do to enjoy the fullness of the third person of the Trinity. And sometimes our situation is like that of the little boy who asks his grandfather, Grandpa, What is the wind? I cannot explain the wind to you, the old fisherman replied, but I can teach you to raise the sails. The book of Acts shows us how the wind of the Holy Spirit is in our sails. It shows us how the Spirit takes and moves these apostles and the believers of Christ from the situation they're in to something even greater. The Holy Spirit is still at work this very day. And we need to know that when we're in that time of waiting and when we're kind of like in the middle of the situation and we don't know what to do just yet, I kind of think of this time of waiting between the ascension and the day of Pentecost is kind of like halftime. You know, there's a big game today that some of you are going to be watching, and typically at halftime, that's when you've got to make some changes, right? You've got to make some adjustments, and the first half of Christ's time on earth is completed, and now the disciples are in the locker room. They're in the upper room, and they're waiting to come out for the second half, but they first got to be filled with the Spirit, have clear direction. What the rest of the game plan is, is they're going to carry out the Great Commission, That's what we're looking at this morning. And as we look at this passage, I want to give you three headings that highlight Christ's team, his starting lineup of those who are waiting for his spirit. And so three parts to our outline this morning. Number one, the faithful assembly. The faithful assembly, we'll see that in verses 12 through 13. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, says where they gathered, where they gathered. Verse 12, look at it with me, if you will. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away at Christ's ascension the disciples were gathered on the mount of olives and Jesus' last words on earth were recorded in verse 8 but you will receive power when the holy spirit you know, you know you have to say it like that by the way whenever you're quoting acts 1:8 you have to say you will receive power when the holy you don't say and you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you, all right? And you will receive power. You want to practice it with me? Come on, one time. You ready? You will receive power. I like that. It's pretty good. All right. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's the theme of the book. That's the carrying out of the great commission. That's where we're headed. And as you know, the disciples are now looking at Jesus who was ascended, he ascended in front of them. He was lifted up, verses 9 through 11, up into the clouds where two men in white robes said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come to you in the same way that he saw you go into heaven. We looked last week at Zechariah 14.4 that says that Jesus will come back to the same spot at his second coming. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives is more like a large hill, more so than a towering mountain. It's about 400 feet over the bottom part of the Kidron Valley, maybe about 200 feet total from Jerusalem. You go down and then up a little bit. So about 200 feet over Jerusalem, 400 feet from the bottom of the valley. And the the disciples are there on the Mount of Olives. And now they're returning to Jerusalem. Verse 12 says that they are a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem. That would have been about 2000 cubits or a half a mile away. The Sabbath day journey was measured in the Old Testament by the distance between the outermost encampment and the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, in the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each one of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the seventh day is to be a day of rest, except for worship at the tabernacle. And so you were to come from the largest distance from the encampment would it be about a Sabbath's day journey. That distance of 2000 cubits is clearly given in numbers 35, five, when it paints the picture and you shall measure outside the city on the East side, 2000 cubits and on the South side, 2000 cubits and on the West side, 2000 cubits and on the North side, 2000 cubits. And, the, side, 2000 cubits, and the city will be in the middle. And so we understand it was a Sabbath day journey, the amount of distance you could walk without doing a work on the Sabbath. And so this is about how far the, the disciples are now from Jerusalem. And so after Christ's ascension, the disciples took that half mile or Sabbath day's journey, hike back to Jerusalem, back to the upper room. Most likely where they had previously been staying, most commentators believe it's probably the same upper room where Jesus had shared his last supper with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. In Mark chapter 14, verse 15, it says that it was a large upper room. The way construction was in the first century, if you had a house with two stories, there were a lot of rooms on the bottom level, but one big room on the top, and that way you had all the walls down below giving support where you could have a large room, in this case, holding up to at least 120 people. Well, that's uh, that's where they were. They were on the Mount of Olivet, and then they came back to Jerusalem. Let's ask the question, who is there? We talked about where they were. Now let's talk your next mic about who was there. And you read, of course, in our next verse, verse 13. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. And so who was there? Well, we have the list here of 11 of the 12 disciples. There's Peter was there. He was always in the front of the list of the disciples. He is their fearless leader who sometimes sticks his foot in his mouth, but he does catch on fire. And he preaches the first sermon by any apostle that will be recorded for us here in the next chapter. Then there was John, who was the author of John's gospel, one of the sons of Zebedee. There is James, John's brother, the other son of thunder. There is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who told Peter, We have found the Messiah. There was Philip, the facts and figures disciple who told Jesus that 200 denarii would not be enough money to buy enough food to feed the 5,000. You have Thomas, we know him as the doubting disciple who eventually came around and saw Jesus for who he was and said, my Lord and my God. Then there is Bartholomew, who was also called Nathaniel. There's Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Younger. There's Simon, the zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot, but this Judas was known also as Thaddeus. That's 11 of the 12. Obviously, there was one disciple that's missing, and that would be Judas Iscariot. And you will see, we'll we'll talk about what happened to him in verses 16 through 20. And so you have these 11 disciples who were joined by other faithful followers. In fact, if you look down at verse 14, it tells us that all together with them, there were the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15 tells us that the company of people totaled to about 120 in all. This is the faithful assembly. Now let's move to our second heading, if we can, this morning. Number two, the the continuous agreement. The faithful assembly who's continuing in agreement. Your next blank says that there is a purposeful company. A purposeful company. Look at verse 14. All these... With one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were together together for a purpose. They they had something in mind. By by purposeful, I mean that they were striving together in unity. There was a corny joke when I was a kid, and it went something like this: Do you know what car the disciples drove? Ever heard this one? Do you know what car the disciples drove? Somebody asked me that. and I'm like, what? You mean like a camel or what type of, you know, how much horsepower did that? No, no. What kind of, what kind of car do they drive? I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, they drove a Honda Accord. I'm like, well, why a Honda Accord? Not, why not a Camry? Well, it says right here, they were all in one Accord. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Whoever told me that thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. What, what is that? That's just, that's just sad, right? But we see here, we do see here that the word accord comes from two Greek words put together. Those two Greek words are homo, which means one and the same or having something in common. And the other word is the word thumos, which means an intense expression of the inner self. It is often expressed as a strong desire, a passion, or a longing. And so together, these two words of the same passion, if you will, could be translated of one mind, of one purpose, having one and the same impulse. So these disciples, along with the others, are all together in one accord. And we see that word accord repeated many times in Acts, often translated with the word together, like in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. They were all in one accord and in one place. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Again, they were in one accord. Acts four twenty-four. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. Kind of like we do when we worship, we're all in one accord. Some of us are on key and some of us are getting there, but we're singing together. That's what it's about. It's about being together. And this company had a purpose and their purpose was let's come together. I'm not doing this alone. Jesus has left us, he's promised us the Holy Spirit, we're in the locker room at halftime, and we got to make sure when we come out for the second half, we're all on the same page. And so this company was purposeful in the fact that they had obeyed Christ's words not to depart from Jerusalem, they kept Christ's word to wait for the promise that the Father had given, and they wanted to do it together in unity. They weren't staying in different places. They were together in the same room. They were not eating their own meals. They were breaking bread together. They were not doing their own thing. They were together in one purpose. And this is exactly what God calls each of us who are in Christ to be like today. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're to still be in one accord together as believers today. As you know, the book of Ephesians has a lot of incredible theology in the first three chapters about how God predestined us before the foundation of the world, and how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive together with Christ, and how we as believers represent the manifold wisdom of God. And then all of a sudden, he gets to chapter 4, and he's like, look, you have a really high calling, a lot of great doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then, chapter 4 says, therefore, a prisoner, he he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You got a high calling, Christian, if you're in Christ, saved before the foundation of the world. God expects much of you, now he expects your conduct, to match your calling. And so here in Ephesians four, he says, you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all verse two says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body And one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. So when we read a passage like that, it just reminds us we're supposed to be in the same car and it's not a Camry. It's a Honda Accord, right? We're all to be together in how we approach life and how we approach church. We're all to be together. So let me just ask you, how are we doing? How would you rate our church when it comes to us having a purpose of being unified together? Are we walking in unity? We may not all have the same ethnicity, but we all have the same Lord. We may not all come from the same culture, but we have one and the same faith. We may have come from different religions or maybe no religion at all, but now we've been baptized into one and the same Christ. And so this means we ought to be loving each other, serving each other, dwelling together in unity, especially with our elder team, especially with our deacons. Our small group leaders, those who serve at this church, we've got to be together and especially in our marriages and in our families. Genesis 2, 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become what? One flesh. That's unity. That's what God's called every marriage to be, a picture of unity, that the two become one flesh. And it's not easy to be unified always in marriage. Ephesians 5, 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So how's it going, wives? Is it easy for you? Because I know it's not, because we live in a human, you know, world, to submit to your husband, to be joined to him. Husbands, you're not off the hook, right? Verse 25 says Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Peter 3, 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's a lot of work to have a God-centered marriage, to, so that both husband and wife can say, you no, we're one in Christ, We're one in him. What about it, children? How does unity look for you as far as it spans out to the rest of the family? The Bible says, Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. If you ever, as a child, as a teenager, think, well, I just don't understand why our house isn't more unified. Well, can I just ask you, do you obey your parents on everything they ask you to do? Or maybe you're the one pulling in the other direction, causing a rift in your family. Because we are called to submit to those that God's placed in authority over us. At the same time, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So it could be your fault, dad or mom. If you're yelling at your kids or getting angry with your children, you're splitting the unity. Instead, we're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Unity starts in the home. And then it continues in the church with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And so we see that this is a very purposeful company pursuing unity together. But we also see your next blank is that they're not only a purposeful company, they're a praying company. Look exactly what they're doing in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were devoting themselves to spending time with God, through prayer. They were talking to God. They were interceding. They were asking God to help them know what it is that he wanted them to do. And the word devoting there means that they were attaching themselves to. It means to persist in. They were not just casually praying or praying before meals only. They were devoted to prayer. And this means that prayer for them was a way of life That prayer was something they did all through the day. And prayer plays a significant role in the story of the church as recorded throughout the book of Acts. These believers prayed for guidance in making decisions as we'll see next week in verses 21 through 26. Prayer was a normal part of their daily ministry in chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. Peter and John prayed in the temple at the hour of prayer in chapter 3, verse 1. They prayed for courage to witness for Christ in chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. They devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word in Acts 6, 4. Stephen prayed as he was being stoned in chapter seven, verses 55 through 60. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans in chapter eight, verses 14 to 17. Saul of Tarsus prayed after his conversion in Acts nine eleven. Peter prayed before he raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts nine thirty-six to 43. Cornelius prayed that God would show him how to be saved in chapter 10, verses one through four. Peter was on the housetop at the same time praying when God told him how he was to be an answer to Cornelius' prayer. The believers in John Mark's house prayed for Peter when he was in prison and the Lord delivered him both from prison and from death, Acts 12, 1 through 14. The the church at Antioch fasted and prayed before sending out Barnabas, uh, Barnabas and Paul in Acts 13, 1 through 3. It was at a prayer meeting in Philippi that God opened Lydia's heart, Acts 16, 25. Paul prayed for his friends before leaving them, Acts 20, 36 and 21. In Acts 27, 35, Paul prayed in the midst of a storm for God's blessing. In Acts 28:8, Paul prayed that God would heal a sick man. Starting to see the repetition? They devoted themselves to prayer. In almost every chapter of Acts, you find a reference to prayer. And this book makes it very clear that something happens when God's people pray. When God's people pray, there, there is something that God is at work behind the scenes doing. And this is a very good lesson for us to learn as a church today. It has been well said that prayer is both the thermostat and the thermometer of a church's spiritual maturity. So if it's hot in here, it's because people have been praying. And as the thermostat goes up, because we're going to make it hotter, come on and it's going to keep getting hotter. You turn the thermostat up, and the temperature keeps going up. That's what we want as a church. We want to be a praying church. It was John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress, who said, quote, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. Here in the book of Acts you see that prayer is accomplishing all of those things a shield to the soul a sacrifice to God and a scourge to Satan as we all probably know the well known verse of 2 Chronicles 7:14 if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So we have a purposeful company. We have here a praying company, and then third, we have a precious company, a precious company. Verse 15 says, they were together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The women, no doubt, included, most likely, Mary Magdalene, because John 20, verse 1, talks about how Mary Magdalene had been there, coming to the tomb early on resurrection morn, when it says the women, also probably including Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary and Martha, probably Salome, and others. We read about these ladies in Mark 16:1. I think that it's also precious that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. By the way, this is the last time you see Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Bible. But she's there with the disciples at this prayer meeting, this time of gathering after the ascension and before Pentecost. And if you'll remember, Jesus entrusted his mom, Mary into the care of John, his beloved disciple, while he was on the cross. John 19, 26 through 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Please note that verse 14 says, Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Bible never says, Mary, the mother of God. That's a quote from Roman Catholicism. You will not find it in the Bible. Mary is the mother of Jesus, using his earthly name to refer to his humanity. Of course, we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but let's not get distracted with somehow referring to Mary, the mother of God, is that somehow she's on the same level as a co-redemptress. She's the mother of Jesus. That's a respectful title enough. That's a privilege in and of itself. So please know here as well that no one is praying to Mary. She's praying with them. There's nowhere in the Bible where we are ever encouraged to pray in any name other than the name of Christ. Christ. So, we're not encouraging anybody to ever pray to Mary, but to pray to God alone. Jesus' brothers were also there. Keep in mind that this would have likely included his half brothers who had a different father, but the same mother. Mary did not perpetuate her virginity, it's not biblical. She had other children, brothers and sisters, that were half brothers and sisters to the Lord. And Jesus was fully God, fully human, but they did have the same mother. And these people, his brothers and sisters, are mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us as they took offense at him? And so we understand from that passage and some of the others in the synoptics, that his brothers were not believers at that time, that his brothers took offense at him. In fact, we read in John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. But at some point, and maybe it was after the resurrection, Christ's half-siblings became believers. Praise God. That Jesus' brothers, and we're assuming his sisters, finally got saved. And of course, we know that James, one of his brothers, went on to be the leader of the Jerusalem church mentioned in Acts 12 and in Acts 15. He was also the author of the book of James. We also know that one of Jesus' other brothers named Judas, so as not to confuse him with Judas Iscariot, but a common name, Judas, went on to write the book of Jude. According to verse 15, we also read that in addition to these brothers, his blood brothers or half brothers, there was about 120 people total. This would have likely included Mark the author of the Gospel of Mark, Luke. Remember, Mark and Luke were not actually one of the 12 apostles. Luke, the author of this book, it would have maybe included people like Lazarus, others that Jesus went with. In fact, in that show, The Chosen, many of you might have watched that. We enjoyed watching that uh, last year. One of the things that kind of struck me about about the program and the series was that Jesus didn't only just spend intimate time with just his 12 He did at times, He took him away to Caesarea Philippi. Certain times it was just Jesus and the 12, but probably a good bit of the time there was always a lot of others, a lot of other people with him, following him as he walked and as he talked and while he was at the wedding and when he was doing what he he was doing, he likely had an entourage of people. Likely this 120 would have been those people that had been spending a lot of time with Jesus. And so we see here that this is a precious and faithful assembly and they are in continuous agreement. We do what we do uh, when we are best when we're together. And when we're together in unity, we're able to honor God, I believe, in the best of ways. And so I just want to ask you again, are you in unity with your spouse and with your family and with this church? And are you the kind of Christian that you could say, you know what, I'm praying together with my family and with those in my small group. Are you fellowshipping together in a healthy way? Do you serve each other? Are you worshiping together? Are you exalting Christ together? We want to have a very continual agreement in all those things at our church. And what else should we be doing? Moving on to our third heading, we should be opening God's word together. And that's exactly what Peter does next in verses 16 through 20, where we read this heading is the scriptural address. Well, what else are you going to do? They're staying together, they're eating together, they're probably they're praying together, likely worshiping together. Now they're gonna open God's word together. And your next blank says the scripture will be fulfilled. And you see that there even in verse 16, Peter at this point brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. We see that Peter stood up, verse 15, then verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who has become a guide to those who have rested Jesus. And so it's kind of amazing to me to think about how Peter had completely changed. If we talk about, again, first half, second half, forgive me for continuing to do that reference, but after the first half, when Jesus died, what did Peter do? He went back fishing. He was like, I'm done with this. I thought that Jesus was restoring the kingdom. Now he's gone. I'm out of here. Now that we're getting ready for the second half, Peter's doing what? He's getting ready. He's in the locker room. He's like, guys, we got to talk about this. We're here together. We got to spend some time opening God's word to figure out and understand better what just happened and what are we supposed to do next? And it's amazing how bold he begins to get here as Peter doesn't go back to fishing. He's now starting his new occupation and it's called preaching. Peter becomes a preacher, and Peter is saying that Scripture, that which is written down in the Old Testament, that which Jesus referred to often again and again when he said, it is written that Scripture had to be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. Again, verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And Peter is referring there to David, who wrote a couple of psalms that are fulfilled as he talks about them in that very moment. That word fulfilled, by the way, it means that it is, when he says it's fulfilled, it means to make full. It means to bring to completion. It means there are things that were prophesied in the scripture and every jot and tittle of the Bible will be fulfilled. And the scriptures that Peter referring to are found in verse 20, when he said it's written in the book of Psalms. He's quoting now from David, Psalm 69:25, May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. And Psalm 109, verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. Peter is reminding this precious company of 120 that God is still in control, not Pilate, not the Romans, not the Pharisees, but God is in control. And he's just reminding them, hey guys, remember David told us about this. This is recorded that all of this would happen just like it has happened. Peter's saying, don't you see guys, this was God's plan all along. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46.10 says that God is declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Here's what we're saying. What happened with Judas, who became a guide, to those who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, That was in exact accordance with God's sovereign plan. It wasn't a mistake. It was not an accident. You say, well, how in the world did David know that that was going to happen to write those two Psalms that fit in so perfectly with what's happening now in real time? The answer is the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. 2 Peter 1.21 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what David said was fulfilled, and maybe Peter is even remembering what Jesus had said in John 17.12. Jesus said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. This is his high priestly prayer. He's talking to God. I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that scripture might be fulfilled. Isn't that beautiful? Scripture's always going to be fulfilled. And scripture prophesies really fun and exciting things like Jesus coming back as the conquering king. And the scripture prophesied really hard things like Satan nipping at Christ Hill, which is a reference to the cross. We understand that Jesus even told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, right? But I've prayed for you that your faith would be strengthened. So we know there's going to be difficulty, but we also know that the scripture cannot go unbroken. Verse 17 here in Acts 1 says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Peter said, hey, that was not a mistake. He was part of us. He was here. Judas had been their friend. Remember, they didn't even know he was the one to betray him. When Jesus said, "One of you will betray me," they're like, "Who?" They had no idea. They didn't go like, "All eyes to Judas. He's probably him." That guy. He 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 had fooled all of them, and on the outside had participated in the ministry. He had carried the money bag. He had acted like he wanted to minister to the poor. He had seen countless miracles of Jesus. Judas had listened to his wonderful words of life from Christ. He had broken bread at the Lord's table. He had been, at least to some degree, part of this ministry. He might have even done much more. But Judas threw it all away for 30 miserable pieces of silver. He threw it all away. And Jesus said in John 6, 64, that there are some of you Who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And we read a few verses later in John 6, verse 70 71. Jesus said to them, Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Jesus chose Judas knowing that he would betray him so that scripture would be fulfilled. Listen, when you're waiting on God, you got to come back to God's word and you got to claim God's promises. And you may not know exact detail of what's going to happen in your life, but you know exact principles that God's word gives that you can hang your hat on that will get you through a rough time any moment of every day. It's so that scripture may be fulfilled Don't be discouraged by what's happening. God is fulfilling a greater plan. And we also see in verses 18 and 19, scripture must be compared to other scripture. Scripture must be compared to other scripture, a little bit more detail. It's like Luke's taking a breath to explain a little bit more about what had been going on or what happened exactly to Judas. He says, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. That's the kind of, you know, devotion I do with my kids on a Saturday morning at home. And the boys are like, oh, dad, read that again. You know, the girls are like, ooh gross. And the guys are like, so they came out? What came out first, Dad? Small (laughs) intestines or large? (laughs) So all of his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Aramaic, Akedama, that is, filled of blood. So what I'm saying here about scripture must be compared to other scripture. These verses, verses 18 and 19, sometimes can be, confusing because Matthew 27, 3 through 10 tells us a slightly different story from a slightly different perspective of exactly what happened to Judas and who it was that bought the field of blood. And it's important for us not to shy away from apparent contradictions, but rather to approach them by comparing this passage with that passage So that God, the Holy Spirit, can actually show us how they complement each other to give us more detail of the story that we don't know. For example, if you hold your place in Acts, go back to it. Matthew 27, verses 3, again, tells it in a slightly different way. In Acts 1, 18 and 19, it says that this man acquired the field with his treasure or the reward of his wickedness that he bought the field. But in this passage of Matthew 27, it's going to say the Pharisees bought it. You'll see what I mean here. Matthew 27, starting in verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. By the way, I always like to say miserable silver, wretched silver, so that you don't start to cling to money too much. Because if you sell your soul to money, it'll make you do evil things. Money in and of itself is not evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we understand here that that was part of the premier motive of Judas. And now all of a sudden that money starts to look pretty sour, doesn't it? It it starts to look pretty wretched and miserable. Those 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, he brings it back saying, verse four, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Then said, excuse me, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Don't you love the higher up spiritual leaders of Israel? They got a broken man who's repented. They're like, we don't care. Get out of our face. We got what we wanted. There was no Christian fruit in these men's lives at all. This guy's trying to confess sin. They don't care. And so throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So again, the Acts passage says he fell out and his bowels came out. This says he hung himself. And again, the other possible contradiction is verse six. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it's not lawful for them uh, in the treasury since it is blood money. That's where the term comes from. And so they took counsel and bought them, uh, bought with them, that's the 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Who bought it? The Pharisees bought it. But Acts chapter one says that, that uh, Judas bought it. So you'd see what I'm saying. What happens is skeptics try to take stuff like that and get real nitpicky like, well, this contradicts this and this contradicts this. The Bible, you can't believe it. I believe every word of the Bible and I believe the story is easily put together where, you're, where one reference is saying Judas bought it, but we understand the way it was actually, that purchase was executed was with the money that was on the temple floor that the Pharisees took and then bought it But it was Judas who paid for it. You understand what I mean? Judas did hang himself. It's most likely thought that he hung himself at the bottom of the Kidron Valley in the Valley of Hinnom where they come together over a cliff. You've probably seen this depicted on a movie before. But he hung himself on some tree that after a couple of days, your body, when you die and you're decaying and it begins to go through putrefaction, can I explain that process to you? No, I've done that before. All right, so when, it, <laughs> so when your body starts decaying, that, that your gut swells up like a ripe melon. So when somehow that rope broke or the branch broke off, whether he fell just a few feet or down the cliff, easily his body would have just burst open and his guts came out. So what I'm saying is it's not really a contradiction, It's really something that helps paint a picture in God's providence of exactly what happened. What I'm saying is you must compare Scripture with Scripture in order to get the right answer. Don't go start reading some liberal, unbelieving skeptic who doesn't even know what they're really talking about. They just give us more detail. The Scriptures do as we read it. That's part of what's going on in the synoptics. It's not a problem. It's a beautiful picture of all different details and angles to give us a clear view of exactly what Christ did and taught. And then our last blank is this. Scripture offers reassurance to believers. I think it was comforting for Peter to get up and say what he said at that moment. He wasn't like, well, we don't have anywhere to go in the Bible to tell us what's, what's up. He's like, hey, we got, we got it right here. We have the manual for life. We have the textbook. We have a theology book. We have a practical book. We have the scriptures where David said this and David said that. And oh, by the way, the end of verse 20, like now we have instructions. We're supposed to go out and find another to take his office. He's gone. He's abandoned his responsibility. So we have to find another person to take his office. That will be next week's sermon. But scripture offers great reassurance. I listed for you there Psalm 55 where David was going through a really rough time. Struggling, and he's talking in that place. You can look at it later. David's talking about either his son Absalom or Ahithophel, his friend who abandoned him. And yet David said, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. All I'm saying is that when you look to scripture, it always gives us comfort and it always revives us. And it gives us reassurance that God's in control and he's doing exactly what he said he would do. When you're waiting on God, put your hope in his word. Put your hope in his promises. I told you I've learned a lot of lessons lessons on waiting on the Lord. There was this one time when I was in college and I had this crush on this girl who I thought was an incredible girl that might have potential for a future relationship. We spent some time together in the context of friends a couple of times, and then it kind of came to a head where it's like this was either going to start into a romantic relationship, or we were just going to be friends. And I remember this girl wrote me a note, and she basically said, let's just be friends. Don't you love those notes, guys? When you get that note, you're like, yes, I like friendship. Friendship is good. <laughs> so I get this note from this girl, and she's like, blah, 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 let's just be friends. I'm like, oh, whatever. You know, and then she gave this verse. And it was Psalm 2714. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So I look it up. I don't always look up references, but I'm like, what is this? You know. So I look up Psalm 2714. You know what it says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. I'm so glad I waited because God provided someone immensely more perfect for me. And God's kindness in his graciousness, he brought about this young lady, Lisa Seahusen, now Tyson. Aren't you glad I waited? Because God knew what he was doing. <clears throat> so I'm just saying like waiting is a good thing, church. And you think you got to have it. You wait on the Lord in that. In the meantime, you trust in God. You trust in his promises. You continue to come back to him again and again and again. But you know what? You can't wait on the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you don't know him. You can't wait on him. So this morning, In this service, I'm calling you out of darkness and out of frustration in your miserable life into a love relationship with Jesus Christ that you don't have to wait any longer. The Bible says today is the day of salvation and I'm calling you today to repent of all of your sin and to trust Christ as Savior. And after our last song, we'll have some people up here who are willing to pray with you and help you come into that relationship with Christ. Or if you're here today and you are waiting on the Lord, but it's just hard and it's difficult And you need some encouragement. We want to pray with you as well. Why don't you pray with me now? Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be encouraged from your word, to see so many things that we can uh, see in scripture. And I pray that as we continue to work through the book of Acts, that you would again and again and again encourage us with that which we do not know, that which you're revealing to us, and that which you're empowering us with day by day by day. And so, God, we're praying that at this moment that you would be with every Christian In this room, as we are all waiting on your return, we're all waiting for something in our life, but help us to see that waiting is not a time of waste. It's a wonderful time of development and growth, unity and prayer, worship and service. We want to be faithful waiters on you. And so as we sing this song to prepare our hearts for communion, I pray that you would encourage us this morning as we seek to wait on the Lord to be strong, to take heart, and to wait on the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.